Mac Power Users, episode 656. The fundamentals are timeless with Stephen Millard. Hello and welcome back to Mac Power Users. My name is Stephen Hackett. I'm joined as always by my friend and yours, Mr. David Sparks. Hey, Stephen. How are you? I am really good. I got a bunch of fun st- stuff to talk about in our uh, in our housekeeping section, but let's introduce our guest first. Yeah, yeah. Welcome to the show, Stephen Millard. Hi, thanks for having me. Stephen is uh, one of my favorite nerds on the internet. Um, you can find him over at Thought Asylum. Stephen was a guest on the um, Shortcuts for Mac Field Guide. He shared a bunch of his cool tricks, but... He does a lot of really interesting automation stuff, and uh, he's written scripts for Alfred. He writes um, just lots of cool automation tools that we all can benefit from, and I've been a fan from afar for a while. Uh, Stephen did come on The Automators. We'll put a link in the show um, for The uh, Automators get, uh, show he guested on. But the um, uh, I just, you know, I really appreciate what you've been adding to the internet lately, Stephen, and I wanted to to share all your goodness with the Mac Power Users audience. So so thanks for agreeing to come on. No problem at all. But before we get into talking to Stephen, we do have some housekeeping today, and it's the big housekeeping, the most important announcement of the year. Stephen, what's going on with St. Jude? Yeah, so it is September every year, uh, this time of year, Relay FM takes some time to raise money for St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. Uh, If you're not familiar with St. Jude, um, they are celebrating 60 years of leading the way the world understands, treats, and defeats childhood cancer and other life-threatening diseases. And the way they do this is by combining cutting-edge research and treatment with the most amazing institution that I can think of, because they don't charge patients' families. Uh, They don't turn anybody away due to race or religion or anything like that. And if you're a St. Jude patient, your treatment bills are taken care of for you. And like I said, it started 60 years ago by Danny Thomas. He had this goal of finding cures and saving children. And it's, it's just an amazing place. I've benefited from it directly. My oldest son is a cancer survivor. He was a St. Jude patient. When he was six months old, he was diagnosed with with a brain tumor, and today he's almost 14 and doing really well, and that is because of the the care that he got at St. Jude. Uh, Their research and treatments are cutting edge. In fact, if you're on their campus and you look around, most of the buildings are actually housing research, and that research is not only for the benefit of St. Jude patients, but it is shared around the world. They have partners uh, all around the world. Their research is shared. And it means that kids uh, both here and afar can benefit from the work at St. Jude. Uh, But all this is funded by people like us giving. So you want to go to stjude.org slash relay. And there's a couple of things there. Uh, As always, we invite you to make a donation. If you make an individual gift of $60 or more, You get uh, this digital bundle with some wallpapers and this just absolutely bananas macOS screensaver that our friend James Thompson made for the campaign. I've been running it uh, for quite a while now as we've developed it, and it's a lot of fun. And if you make an individual gift of $100 or more, you can receive a set of stickers as well as the digital bundle. 
Uh, but there are a couple of other things this year. So you, if you want to start your own fundraiser, you want to get more hands-on, uh, you can do that. Fundraisers who set up a campaign and raise $1 or more get an exclusive St. Jude limited edition of the Relay FM Challenge coin. And if you fundraise $250 or more, you receive what my copy says is a unique desk mat. Uh, you can see it on the, the stjude.org slash Relay webpage. Uh, it's got the cartoon art of me and Mike all over it. I've got one here. It is, uh, it's a, it's wild. It's a lot of fun having it on my desk. So you can fundraise, you can donate. A lot of people, especially in the MPU audience, uh, may work for companies that actually have like a matching gift program. So if you work in a company, ask your manager, ask your HR representative. And if they don't have one, or maybe St. Jude's not in there, get in touch with us and we can help get that set up. Uh, if you do have a matching gift program, there's a form online, uh, again, at stjude.org slash relay, where you can fill it out and the match gets credited to our campaign. So lots of stuff going on this month, but really the heart of it is sharing the mission of St. Jude, what they do uh, to uh, keep these kids um, healthy and to, and, to, and to give their families hope. And again, not charging their families for any treatment. I really can't say what that meant to us over the years. It's it's just incredible. So please get involved. Please donate. Stjude.org slash relay. I mean, can I just add that? I mean, we do a lot of stuff here. We talk about focus modes. You know, we talk about, uh, you know, home automation. But we actually save lives once a year. And we don't save them by us talking about it. We save it by everybody pitching in together. And as a community, that's one of the things I love about this community. It's so generous. Uh, the MPU audience is always big in the St. Jude fundraiser. We were big before Steven was on the show. You know, when it was Katie and me, I remember the MPU audience was one of the biggest contributors. And I, I love that so much. In fact, this year, Stephen, what I'm going to do, because I have a perfectly fine Apple watch I bought last year. Mm -hmm. So this year I'm going to have you pick out an Apple watch for me after the big event next week. <laughs> and I'm going to donate that amount of money to St. Jude. Perfect. So you got you to gotta pick a watch for me, and that's going to be my new watch this year. I'm going to have a Solid gold. No. <laughs> now, now, if they come out with a gold one, I'm going to be really nervous because I, you know, I don't know. I have to get a mortgage or something. But I, I feel like Steven will take care of me. But yeah. But I'm, I'm giving you the power again, man. Awesome. You have the power. Okay. So we'll, we'll figure that out on the show after we actually have watches we can buy. Yeah. Yeah. That'll be, uh, That'll be next week. And that, that is a, a good segue. You know, we are, as this show comes out, really just a few days from Apple's event. So our next episode, we're going to be talking about their announcements, and we're going to get into iOS 16 some. So keep yeah. keep your eye out for that. Uh, definitely kicking off kind of the busy season of Apple stuff, St. Jude stuff's all at the same time. September's busy, but it's the yeah. best kind of busy. Yeah, I love that. I love that. It's all happening at once, buddy. Mm-hmm. All right, Stephen, uh, thank you so much for, for coming. I talked earlier in the show um, that you're blogging over at Thought Asylum, but uh, also on Twitter, you're S-Y-L-U-M-E-R. What's the story behind that? So that just comes uh, from the, web, the website, really. Um, so when I was setting up my website, I was struggling to find um, a name for the website, and eventually yeah. I settled on uh, Thought Asylum, a place for my, my, my thoughts to be safe and... Uh, published and um on twitter there was you know you get an at sign in front of your username so i kind of took asylum 
yeah. uh, and added an ER on the end and then just dropped the the at for the, the name, really. So Silent. that's all it is. Yeah, okay. yeah. I was thinking there was something deeper to that, but now that I look at it on, on, on the screen, Unfortunately, it's not. <laughs> kind of obvious. But the, uh, and then you've also got um, tech tutorials by Silomer on YouTube. That's a new thing you're starting doing. We're going to talk about that today, more power users, uh, how you got started with YouTube and how that's going. But you've been using computers your whole life. So, so let's get your origin story for the Thought Asylum. I mean, when's the first time you sat down at a computer and started making stuff happen? Uh, yeah, so I would have been about seven years old, and uh, my parents bought a microcomputer, um, uh, something called a Sinclair ZX Spectrum, and it was a, a little black box with rubber keys, and it came with a manual, and the manual taught you how to program in BASIC, and I basically just sat down with that, taught myself to program, and that one that one sold in the U.S. as well. It was for people in the U.S. that was it was known at the time as the Timex Sinclair. And I literally would have sold a kidney for one at the time. I, I was like, how old was I at the time? I was like uh, 12 or so. And I, I really wanted one of these. I remember it. And it, it, it um, put the, the basic up on a television screen, right? It was not. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It is not what we would think of today as a computer. <laughs> well, that's good. No, though. You, you no. started You started at the beginning. So you've kind of seen the whole journey. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I kind of started with that, and then I got some uh, programming magazines that were at the time in the UK, and I went through those. And then I didn't really touch computers again until I I was studying. I left school and went to like a, a local college for some further education. I started studying a bit of uh, more about computers there, and I attended a night school class with my mother, and we learned about PCs. Uh, so that when I then went on to university, uh, I actually knew what I was doing with them. And I, I did my undergraduate degree. And as part of that, I started using computers a bit more. And then I ended up doing, after that, a master's degree in computer science. So I really started to get more and more into computers as, as time's gone on. Yeah. And what was your focus in the in the master's program? I know that there's like, you know, computer science can mean a lot of things. Yeah. So um, it was a course on information processing, which was just a very generic name within computer science but uh we covered um quite a broad range of things and uh i ended up specializing in um graphical uh tools to help you solve logical problems uh towards the end of the year um but prior to that i in my undergraduate degree i was i was building neural networks for use in physics experiment analysis and all sorts of bits and pieces it was it's quite a broad ranging uh opportunity really at university to do all sorts of things with computers I can also see how with a degree like that, the appeal of workflow turn shortcuts and all of these kind of block based automation tools must have appealed to you because it sounds like that's not that far off from the kind of stuff you were studying at university. Yeah, I mean, honestly, uh, when I first started using PCs, I was taught DOS and moving files around and um, organizing things. And I, that was like a whole new world to me at the time. And, and, that was the basic uh, building blocks of automation there. And it's just, I've been getting access to more tools, better tools, more sophisticated tools ever since. So it's kind of a natural progression, I think. Yeah, that's always something I've been curious about people who have degrees in this field. Like, do you get to a point where you feel like, okay, well, what I learned is is so different from where we are that maybe it doesn't matter anymore, but it sounds like you've been able to to pull, you know, pull that thread all the way through to what you're doing now. 
Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of the fundamentals um, are timeless, if you like. Uh, a lot of the the skills around logic that you learn, a lot of the mathematics that you you pick up, the design approaches, the user interface development principles, they, they don't really change that much. They might evolve a little bit, but uh, the tools that we use are constantly evolving. And that's, that's kind of, <laughs> that's where the action is. I mean, even like as, because we were kind of kids around the same time, the original programming paradigms were very literal and you had to like program from beginning to end, whereas now they have APIs and they have subroutines which was totally foreign to me as a child when I was doing programming. It, it, it is, you know, you, you really have seen the evolution over the course of your career. Yeah, I mean, I, I still, I would say in my current role, I don't really get to see the, the cutting edge sort of things that are going on, but uh, I, I kind of am maybe a few levels removed from that in what I'm, I'm currently working on, but it's, it's still a really exciting time. It's, it's, I've been like a kid in a toy shop ever since I, I got my hands on a keyboard, really. And you started learning PCs, but eventually you found your way to a computer with a little Apple on it. How did that happen? Yeah, so um, probably a little over 10 years ago, um, I was in a role where I was running a, a small IT department in higher education. And we had everyone kitted out with PCs. Uh, we were very much a Dell PC sort of place. Everything was Microsoft, apart from one guy who was a designer who had a Mac. And we, because of the IT department, we had to support him. And I knew nothing about Macs. Wait, wait, wait a second. Wait, you were IT and you took efforts to support a Mac user, a single <laughs> Mac user? <laughs> yes. What, what is this? What is this strange language you speak? I, I don't like not knowing things. I mean, I, when I started my career, I was working on mainframes. Uh, as long as it's a computer, I'm quite happy no matter what no matter what it is. Um, but I, I really, I knew nothing really about Macs. I'd briefly used some at university and the experience honestly was quite poor at the time. Um, they were known for crashing, but they were quite old Macs. And so I'd never really thought to do anything with them. They had a, a reputation of being for multimedia at the time, I think. But I wanted to support this person. So I went and I bought a, a Mac Mini. So I bought the most entry level one I could just to start teaching myself what it could do, how it could be used, uh, so that I would have some idea when he started talking to me about problems he might be having with his Mac, I might be able to help him resolve them. That's great. I mean, <laughs> you know, we've got a lot of IT professionals listening to the show, and they're all, you know, your version of IT. But it's just like, in during my career, so often I, be, I would bang into IT people that as soon as you told them you had a Mac, the walls, you know, got mm-hmm. built. Yeah. No, especially then, right? I mean, I think it, it it's still true today to a degree, but if you're thinking about the late nineties, I mean, good grief, you were the weirdo with the with the Mac. It was also though the time where people would walk up to you in an airport and ask you about your Mac. Like yep. <laughs> if you had a Mac and that, that's happened to me, like every time I take a flight, the only other Mac user in the airport would come up and befriend me, you know. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, you too. Hey, let's talk. We're friends, you know. Well, either way, so you got yourself a Mac Mini. You started to learn it. So, what, what were your initial impressions? It was very pretty. Was I, I would say was my my initial impression. It was um, you could tell that a lot of thought had been put into not just the function of the user interface, but the design of it. It, it certainly had a, a very polished feel to it at the time. I think it was uh, 
probably leopard snow leopard sort of time i think uh when i when i got that mac okay. um and yeah I, I started using it i started looking at the software that was available and i found a few pieces of software that were not like anything i'd seen before on the pc so i, th- I think the first one that really caught my attention was uh rogue amoeba used to produce a piece of software called radio shift which allowed you to record um radio programs off the internet and you could set it to come on and record that and save it and and that was that was great because that allowed me to kind of almost like build my own podcast if you like of, of certain things on the radio that i would otherwise miss because i was out of the house or i was asleep or something like that so that i kind of started to get into some sort of elements of automation around that and then i started finding tools like text expander and keyboard maestro and it just kind of kept growing from there really yeah is there anything because i get asked this often because i wrote the keyboard maestro field guide is there anything like that on the pc not quite no not that i've come across yeah. um there are lots of tools but i think the nearest one is microsoft have power uh power automate or uh flow as it used to be called i think that's kind of a bit more if this then that but it has desktop components as well and there's a lot of robotic process automation tools out there that are kind of getting to that sort of uh, idea of what Keyboard Maestro does of interacting in that sort of way. But they are considerably more expensive in terms of licensing, and you tend to find those in corporate environments. Stephen, have you noticed that whenever we have a switcher on the show, that the thing that usually almost every time is the thing that pulls them in is the third-party software? You know, I mean, yeah. the, the Mac is a great piece of hardware, but it is the rogue amoebas, the keyboard maestros of the world Mm -hmm. that really are the reason why we all love it. Yeah, I find that really fascinating because that wasn't always true. I mean, if you think back to the classic Mac era, maybe it was, but then the early parts of OS X, those early days, it, it took a little while. And I remember kind of being a Mac user in the early aughts, like people like, oh, well, you need a Windows machine for this program and that program. And but yeah, the ecosystem around the Mac, you know, the the third party developers, that's what make the platform worthwhile. It's certainly a game changer in in terms of how you look at uh, a software platform is is what what you can take and build on it and having the tools there to help you build your next thing or do your next piece of work that much better, that much faster. The, the third party tools are, are always the ones that are kind of pushing the boundaries, I think. Stephen, uh, at what point did the uh, did that Mac Mini come from? Go from a computer that you were trying to understand so you could support somebody to a computer that you actually wanted to use. So I guess it was it was probably a couple of years. Um, so I didn't kind of jump all in on using the Mac when I first got it. It really was just to kind of slowly teach myself about it. But I kind of I got sucked in over time, um, and I guess there came a tipping point and. Um, I decided well, actually this this Mac Mini is is okay, but I need something a little better, and so I I bought a, a MacBook Pro. So I can't quite remember when that was, but it would have been like a couple of years later, or so maybe around twenty ten, something like that. Um, and that's when I kind of really started using it as my my daily driver, personal computer, if you like, and really started uh, exploring and understanding the Mac to to a whole new level. I would think a guy like you, the Unix underpinnings probably helped sway as well. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I love that stuff. Um, I got taught a lot of Unix stuff at university. Uh, I'd never, never touched it until I went to university, went to university and it was just everywhere. Um, there are so many, again, like third party tools that are just lined up, ready to use. You can download them all. They're pre-installed and they're so efficient, so powerful for doing manipulations of text files and things, which I was doing a lot of at university. And then, um, knowing that I had access to that on the Mac, it was just, uh, it was very reassuring, honestly, um, that I had, I could, you know, if I ever got stuck with something, there's a really good chance that I could just um, use like Mac ports or something, get a um, a piece of uh, command line software on there and uh, off I go. Can we use Unix as a verb? Like you could Unix your way out of it. <laughs> That sounds good to me. <laughs> I feel like people that are really into Unix do Unix their way out of a lot of things. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't get to use it day to day currently, but um, it is so powerful uh, when you when you start chaining everything together and building your your scripts to 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 move things around to process things. It, it's so efficient. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Sanebox. Samebox is one of my favorite services because every day it helps me wrangle my email and it can help you too. Samebox learns what email is important to you and filters what isn't saving you hours. The way it works is Samebox looks at the sender and the subject line of each email and then uses its own knowledge to figure out if that is an important email to you or not. And it is spooky good at this. So when you check your email in the morning, rather than having a hundred emails in your inbox, you've only got the seven most important ones. And it puts the rest of them in other mailboxes. And one of the most common ones it uses is called saying later. So it's something you can look at later, like the advertisement from Land's End or something like that. It works with all kinds of programs and services. You don't have to have a special app. And I really like pairing Sanebox with Apple Mail. If you use Apple Mail, Samebox adds all those features that you wish Apple Mail had. So you got the filtering like I was talking about. You can put things in Sane later. It's also got what they call the same black hole, which allows you to unsubscribe with one click. Um, they've got a snooze feature. If you want to defer email until next week or tomorrow or the weekend or whatever, it can do that. And that's actually quite a powerful tool for email once you start using it. Um, they've got reminders, probably my favorite feature in Sanebox is reminders. So if you carbon copy or blind copy an email to one week at sanebox.com or February 7 at Sanebox, it's going to put the email off uh, until that date or that amount of time. And it's going to check to see if you got a reply. So if I reply to Steven and say, and then I copy it to one week at sanebox.com, if he doesn't reply to me in a week, it's going to let me know. I used to have a super complicated way to keep track of email replies. Now I just use the same reminders feature and I'm good. And it's more than filtering too. You can move attachments to Dropbox or other cloud services. And they've got pricing plans going as low as $4 a month. You get 14 days uh, for a free trial. I recommend you give it a try. The conversion rate for Mac Power users listeners is super high. And it's because... Um, the Mac Power users are people looking to save time, and Sanebox really delivers on that promise. So go to sanebox.com slash MPU. You get a $25 credit. We negotiated that. That's the highest credit they give to anyone, and we wanted the MPU listeners to get that. Uh, once again, sanebox.com slash MPU. Get that $25 credit. Try it for a couple of weeks, and I bet you'll be hooked like I am. 
So thanks again, SaneBox, for sponsoring the Mac Power Users. Everybody check it out and stop drowning in email. So Stephen, what are you using today in terms of Apple hardware? So currently, my um, my daily driver, if you like, is um, I've got a 2018 15-inch MacBook Pro, so an Intel one. I really wish I had one of the silicon ones. They look absolutely amazing. Um, yeah, just don't I get just... near one. That's all. That's my only <laughs> advice. If you've got an Intel one, don't like spend any time on, a, on an Apple silicon one. That's, that's dangerous. <laughs> but... Honestly, it, you know, even this Intel one, uh, for everything I'm doing at the moment, there's a few things it's maybe a bit slower at, uh, but it's still it's still fine. I mean, my previous MacBook Pro, I ran for probably eight or nine years, um, and I swapped out the hard drive for an SSD, but um, I, I try and get a decent MacBook Pro uh, when, I, when I can afford one, and it I expect it to last for years, and they always do. Yeah. Um, so I've been running that for a few years and it's rock solid. It's absolutely fine. I also have, I do have, uh, I did eventually replace my Mac mini, uh, with another Mac mini as well. So I have that running as a, an always on Mac that's doing various bits and pieces for me as well. Um, so I have that doing things like running Hazel in the background so I can, uh, I can drop things into Dropbox or something or monitor it and do nice things for me. Like, uh, working with PDFs, splitting them up or combining things together and uh, doing things like I have a, a scan snap attached to it. So I've got it set up so that my wife or I can can scan to it and we can set something to say where it's going to go. Um, and I have a label printer connected to it, which I can then trigger remote printing of labels for various things um, and things like that. So that's kind of like my, my work, my little workhorse in the background. Um, but that one was feeling its age, and so uh, that's actually running off an external SSD now. Um, and just even by adding an external SSD, that that has extended its life massively. So I don't even feel like I need to to replace that amount. I think that's from 2014, and that's still going strong as far as I'm concerned. Man, I I am hearing the siren song of a Mac Mini now that I've kind of settled on this laptop <laughs> oh, existence. Oh boy. Oh boy. <laughs> I'm just saying, it's it's lingering back there. <laughs> Uh, and then all these great ideas. What, have you tried any experiments with the Mac Mini that just didn't work out? That you're like, ah, that didn't really. That's not worth it. Um, I don't think so. I think uh, everything. You're not I've, helping, I've, man. You're not helping. <laughs> everything <laughs> I've I've needed it to do, it's it's done. But I, I, you know, I'm not exactly taxing it a great deal. I've got a few services and processes running on there constantly that I can I can access remotely. But it's it's not being pushed to its limits as it is. Are you doing the backups on your, um, like your wife's computer on it as well? Uh, my wife doesn't actually have uh, a Mac at all. She okay. she has an iPad, um, but yeah, she she just manages. Uh, my my wife and children all manage with just iPads at the moment. So uh, there's only me who's uh, who's got a Mac. Yeah, I mean that that's kind of the the way of the world for a lot of folks, you know. Um, well, you know, all, all I can say is 2018, at some point, you're going to have to replace that MacBook Pro and you're in for a, a, a wonderful surprise once you get on it. But if I were you and you know anybody that has an Apple Silicon Mac, I would not touch it with a 10-foot pole. <laughs> uh, the only thing I'm not looking forward to, I seem to be one of those strange people who actually likes the touch bar. Uh, okay. yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I, for me, that's like um, it's like my stream deck on the go. Um, okay. I, lo- I love the Elgato Stream Deck. Uh, it's really great for 
triggering stuff. But it's like when I'm traveling, I do have a case to take that in, but it's a bit bulky to carry everywhere. And so the the touch bar functions as my my stream deck a lot of times. So I really I I, I am I am conflicted about that one. Did you customize it at all? Oh, absolutely. Of course. Yeah, I'm sure better, you did. Better touch yeah. tool is uh is a mainstay on my on my computer. Yeah. <laughs> shall we say? I mean, honestly, we could just stop right now and spend the rest of the show on better touch tool. And I'm sure you'd have some cool tips. <laughs> yeah, so it's just just like so powerful. Um and then which which stream deck are you using? Um so I've got the three by five, so the fifteen key uh, sure. stream deck. Um that that's uh the the tiny one was uh which is i think it's like only three or six keys or something that was just too small to me to be useful i actually, I actually did start with um there's something called a keybo which is almost like um a, a numeric keypad uh yeah. that you can that has a, a raspberry pi inside of it that you can uh customize i did start with that and i found out i couldn't always remember what was there which so i switched to a stream deck so i could customize the buttons but i find just switching between apps i'm, I'm never running out of buttons uh, yeah. to use things um and the larger stream deck i honestly i don't have a very large desk i don't have room to fit that on <laughs> yeah so what you're doing is you're having it reconfigure itself depending on which app you're using yes absolutely yeah what are some of your favorite i'd love to hear like what are some of your favorite tips or uh, cool things you're doing with the stream deck. I, I know someone like you has to have some some fun tricks up your sleeve. The main thing I, I use it for is um, triggering keyboard maestro macros. So yeah. most of the magical things <laughs> that go on, on my Mac seem to be driven by keyboard maestro in some way. So I actually just have them set up to, um, at the moment, to trigger just by the URLs because uh, I'm experimenting with the uh, Better Touch tool beta support for the stream decks i've gone i just closed the stream deck software and i'm all in on the best touch tool one now to see if that's that's going to give me any advantages or not all right let me let me break that down for folks who haven't kept up with that so um yeah like historically with keyboard maestro they have a plugin like an official plugin which i find to be kind of tedious you know because you've got to map it to a specific location on the stream deck and then there's a third party one called km link i know um uh, Stephen, have you ever used that one, the KM link? Yes, yeah, absolutely. That that was uh, that's the one I do use when I'm running the Stream Deck software. You can put it on your Stream Deck software. You can attach any script, and it goes and it like finds all your scripts. And if it's like me, it's a lot, so you have to do a lot of scrolling when you set it up. But now, Better Touch Tool, they have a feature where you can entirely control a Stream Deck from Better Touch Tool, which would mean that you no longer no longer need to run the Elgato software and you can just run it basically native off a of better touch tool. So, so how, and so you're, you're transitioning to that. How's it going? Yeah. So at the moment, all I've managed to do is to reproduce what I have in the stream deck software inside of better search tool. So at the moment it's, it's really just the same. Um, so the next, thing that i want to try out is uh doing some of the more dynamic scripting inside better touch tool to see what interesting things i can do with uh yeah. with the stream deck buttons at that point but i i literally have just finished the migration if you like or the reproduction because uh, what i didn't want to do was switch over yeah and find that I had stuff missing and so that, that was giving me a negative experience so i was trying to make them equal and then move from there and see see what that gave me 
And then you, does it give you a visual representation of your stream deck or something? So it's easy to see what's where on the, on the stream deck or it does not, I do miss that, but yeah. uh, I, I just document everything I do. So I actually have a, a page in obsidian that, uh, that I are pages for each of the, the apps that I have. And each page tells me the location and what I've got set for each button. So I just keep track of things in there as well. All right, Stephen, I want you, Stephen Hackett, I want you to note that Stephen just dangled the obsidian hook in front of my face. And I did not, I did not even take a nipple. <laughs> okay. Just so you know, but the, um, I, I do think that, uh, that is one nice thing of the existing stream deck software. It makes it really easy and visual, but yeah. I agree the deeper scripting of a better touch tool, like better touch tool is the only app or the only way I've ever found to script moving a window to a different space. Um, I have like spent effort on this, like trying to Apple script it, trying to find some way through it. And I don't know how he did it, but um, somehow better touch tool has an action that does that for you, which I mapped to a keyboard shortcut for myself, but that's the kind of thing why wouldn't I want to put that on my stream deck? And you can't do it with the native software, but you could do it with the better touch tool mapping. So I am, uh, I'm not far behind the canary uh, in the coal mine there on, on digging into that. I just haven't had time yet, but uh, I, I do like the idea of trying to get rid of the stream deck software and just run it on something that I, I like even better. Yeah. Well, you can, you can run them both together. There is a, a, a plugin for better touch tool so you can use them both together but apparently the performance is supposed to be better if you're just using better touch tool but it means giving up the existing plugins and things like that but i wasn't making a great deal of use of those on on the mac so uh it's, I thought it's still an experiment at the moment yeah I, I think the idea of running them both at once seems like just a recipe for something that's gonna one day bite you and you're not gonna know why um so <laughs> i'm uh, i'm not a big fan of that idea so, um, but we got we got off the the, the path here a little bit. Um, uh, so you've got the um, the Mac Mini and you've got the the MacBook Pro. Um, what about your your non Mac hardware? Are you a tablet guy or you know the rest of Apple's stuff? Yeah, I've got. Uh, I, I I like the reliability of uh, the Apple things. I used to be. Uh, I used to be. Uh, I'm almost a card carrying Android user. Um, and that was until around the time why my first son was being born and my phone kept crashing and I decided I needed a more robust and reliable phone. And at that point I had a, an iPod touch and I thought I'm going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invest in an iPhone. And then I've been using iPhones ever since I'm still on an iPhone eight plus, uh, but I do have some money set aside for uh, maybe disappearing out of my bank account in the next month or two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's high time. I've been kind of holding on and holding on and, my my phone still works it's still fine and i I like to get as much use as i can and be ecologically conscious about these sort of things and you know it's it is time that i I need a new phone so um i'm uh i'm looking forward to seeing what apple are are gonna give us in a few weeks time and see what i'm gonna go for i also have uh one of the older ipad pro so it's it's probably my oldest bit of uh sort of day-to-day carry uh hardware at the moment that's a, a 2016 ipad pro a 9.7 inch one that's definitely feeling its age um i would love to upgrade that this year but i i think the phone's going to win out overall so uh, maybe next year or maybe it'll be a a silicon mac it depends how close i get to one (laughs) uh and i have a a series 4 apple watch and i have airpods and uh uh, yeah i love the way everything works together and that's the idea man get it all from one one vendor and hopefully it all works 
I mean, as someone who's kind of grown up with computers, I think you can appreciate that. I, I remember what it was like trying to make, you know, this PC work with that thing or, you know, remember the, the Palm pilot and the, you know, it was just really difficult when you had all these different platforms. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's kind of a holdover for me. Maybe it's not as hard anymore as it used to be, but that's definitely one of the sticky reasons why I like Apple. Yeah. Well, I, I spent four years working in uh, an IT department or managing an IT department, IT support and all of that. And it, there were definitely challenges, but I would say I'm more of an end user these days, but it, things have definitely improved. I would say the Macs are definitely more stable and more robust in general, but I think the, the hardware support is probably on a par these days, I think, in, in the main. Yeah, do you own like a PC, a Windows PC? Do you do much work on that side? I don't own one, but I, I do use one practically every day with my, my day job. How is Windows doing now? I mean, every I haven't spent a lot of time with it. Like Stephen and I did an experiment with about two years ago where we used it for a couple of weeks, but I, I'm not using it day to day anymore. Same as it ever was, I would uh -oh. say. <laughs> um, so uh, the, it functions just fine for what I need it to do. I'm quite familiar with the sort of things that I need to do day to day. Um, and I'm one of those people. I I automate on the Mac. I automate on Windows. Um, if you give me a computer, I'll, I'll automate it in some way. Um, and so I, I make my computer do all sorts of whizzy things that my colleagues have no idea how I made it to do that. Um, and I, I will I will bend it to to what I need it to do. So I, I probably don't notice as much as other people uh, what it's like. But I think I think much like the Macs, that the sort of big difference that made such an improvement over the last few years has been the standardization on SSDs. Yeah, it's just the performance just went through the roof when that happened. Um, although obviously uh, the uh, silicon chips in Apple's uh, Macs these days are um, really giving it to the the PC manufacturers. Yeah, <laughs> they are. <laughs> I mean, it is um, weird looking back. I remember, you know, when we had the floppy disks and we moved to hard drives, and it was like this monumental change in the way our computers worked. And then we went from hard drive to SSD. That was the next huge leap. And I guess to a lesser extent, the transition from Intel to Apple Silicon was a, a huge leap. But I honestly don't know what the next vector for that is. I mean, where what is the next thing that changes that makes computers way better? Uh, the only thing I can think of off the top of my head would be batteries. Like suddenly there's some big leap in battery technology where your computer just runs for like a week on a charge and you don't think about batteries anymore. But I don't know where else they move. What do you guys think? I mean, I think that's a definitely a, a low hanging fruit at this point. I mean, I feel like the efficiency and the power that we have with Apple Silicon is great. And battery life is better because of it. But you're right. It's been a long time since a big breakthrough. I would have to agree on the batteries um, purely because that battery power is, is everywhere. We, we've gone, you know, everyone's going um, electric vehicles at the moment and, um, off-grid power and things like that so the investments in the science and the technology around batteries is is huge at the moment so if there's going to be a large breakthrough that's that's got to be one of the leading areas that it's going to occur in but i think it's going to the impact is going to be far more than just computing it's going to yeah. extend into all sorts of areas of our lives 
Yeah, and in fact, I, I'm so I'm showing my age by talking about it in terms of laptops because I feel like we're going to feel it way more in our iPhones than or whatever the thing is that we carry in our pocket than we will in our actual computers. It's like imagine an iPhone that just runs for like two weeks. Well, I would imagine it might even see it in watches first or something like that because they're going to yeah. be smaller and cheaper to to prototype. This episode of MPU is made possible by Electric. When you think of the phrase boss move, you may think of making a bold business decision or maybe giving a great presentation in front of your board. The reality is sometimes being a boss in a small business means sorting out the orange juice that you spilled on your own keyboard or helping a staff member when setting up their new laptop. The team over at Electric knows small businesses, maybe like yours, face these challenges. That's why they've solved this problem for you by operating as your IT department. Instead of spending your time sorting through unused application licenses, setting up employee laptops, and answering never-ending IT questions, you can focus on building your business. With Electric acting as your IT department, you can get back to what you're good at. Plus, you get a really cool IT platform to see and manage everything. Look, I get it. I'm a small business owner. Delegating is hard, but with Electric, you are getting an awesome platform and team to help run your IT and your company. It's really important to focus on what you're good at and know when to let go of other things. For MPU listeners, Electric is offering a free pair of Beats Solo 3 headphones for taking a qualified meeting. Sign up at electric.ai slash MPU. That's electric.ai slash MPU. Go there now for your free pair of Beats Solo 3 headphones for scheduling a meeting. Our thanks to Electric for their support of the show. Yeah, so Stephen, we've been talking for a while, and I haven't been able to talk to you about automation yet. Um, uh, you were uh, one of my favorite people that is publishing stuff about shortcuts. Um, you're taking the skill set you've grown throughout your whole life and and cooling up, coming up with some really great shortcut stuff. Um, how are you using it, and and what do you think of it? Yeah, I've been using uh, shortcuts since it was uh, originally Workflow. Um, I saw all the the press releases about it, sort of leading up to. Um, them releasing it and i was immediately hooked i think on a, a little youtube video that they showed of it having all these interactions that were that were driven by um the x callback url linking between the application things and i've just kind of I, I i was really taken with the fact that it gave me a way to automate my phone um yeah. previously every all the automations were were kind of on, on the on the mac itself um, but been able to do it on the phone. I mean, I'd done little bits with Launch Center Pro and drafts and things like that. But this was this was cross app, and this was a little more exciting. A little it it gave you new ways to do things, and so that was kind of uh, if you'll forgive the phrase the the gateway drug that kind of attracted me to making more use of shortcuts or making more use of workflow at the time. I mean, they really didn't have a plan for automation when they launched the iPhone. It's obvious in hindsight. Yeah. Yeah, totally. <laughs> but I mean, why would they? That wasn't the focus at the time. You know, it's yeah. it's evolved into that, and, and obviously um, with the acquisition and bringing workflow into the into the Apple ecosphere and making it shortcuts has just given them so much flexibility and and in, in what they can do and how deep they can hook into things, uh, and that's just opening up lots of great opportunities that not only just apply to the phone, but thankfully after after fairly recent um additions to the mac as well which means you can have this cross-platform 
um, automation, which is you know, a gold standard, if you like. Um, of course, the you know problems aside on the Mac that they've experienced with with creating everything in Swift and the challenges that have kind of been presented there, but the the idea that we can have this thing operating across all the platforms and hooking into everything, it's it it's going to be the glue that binds everything, and so that that's really exciting to me. Yeah, I am like really warming up to shortcuts for Mac after a year. Originally, it was very difficult the first year, but you're starting to see so many interesting third-party app developers tie into it now that I really feel like in a year or two, this thing is going to be a, a very big platform for automation for normal people. You know, I mean, where you don't have to like learn to, to write Apple script or go into the, you know, the terminal to do something. It's really impressive to me how, uh, how good stewards of workflow Apple has been. I think all of us were probably nervous about that news, right? I remember, you know, seeing a tweet like Apple's buying workflow and and sort of my, my heart dropping a little bit that they were going to disappear it. But really it's, it's been an incredible run and yeah, the Mac app wasn't great when it started, but, and yeah, there's things, there's always things to do. But overall, I feel like Apple's done a good job at, at taking what was this third-party utility and bringing it in-house and supporting it in their own apps. And I've been really encouraged by all of that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you've got a, a Stephen sharing, sharing a couple of shortcuts with the audience, and we're going to put links in the show notes. You've got this one here called Overcast Note, which I think is kind of brilliant. And uh, it really is a good example of what Stephen Millard does because it's, you could make this a simple shortcut, but you actually take it a couple of steps deeper. Tell us about this overcast note shortcut. Yeah. So um, I listen to a lot of podcasts, uh, such as uh, Mac Power Users, for instance. Um, and when I'm listening, um, there are things that I, I hear that I think, oh, I want to do something about that later, or I want to make some sort of note about it. Um, and so what I did was I created a shortcut that um, I've tied to there's an accessibility feature on the iphone where you can set back taps to trigger a shortcut so what i've done is i think i've set it to a triple back tap where it will then trigger this shortcut and the shortcut will uh then interact with overcast which is my podcast player of choice um what it will do first of all is check if it's actually running if it's running it will pause the the podcast at that point um, it'll then pop something up and ask me how I want to make a note. And I can either dictate a note, which is why I get it to pause, or I could type a note in. So I can, at that point, add my note that I want to make about the pod, this point in the podcast. Um, the shortcut then also um, queries out, um, Overcast and gets the details of where in the podcast it is. So it gets a link with a time index. But then what I do is I also pop up a menu uh, to give me a few time options to say, well, actually, I want to link to 30 seconds back or two minutes back, because usually my thoughts are going to come after I've listened to something rather than before I've listened to it. So I kind of have an idea of like, well, roughly how long was that segment? Okay, I want to link back to roughly that. And so what it'll do is update the time index in the URL it gives me. And then what it does is it builds all that together into a note which gets put into my drafts app. 
um, which is where I, I take all of my ideas and everything kind of starts in drafts. I'm a huge fan of drafts. Use it all the time, but it dumps it into there so I can process it later. And then it checks back and so, uh, to uh, check if Overcast was playing at the start. And so for that, I'm actually using uh, there's a, uh, an action in the Ever Useful Toolbox Pro, which is a helper app for shortcuts that lets you know if there's audio playing at the start or not, uh, audio currently playing. So I check that at the start. And if there was audio playing, it will restart Overcast. Whereas if I'd had it paused, manually for example it wouldn't immediately start playing it again but that just makes it really easy to very quickly take some notes about something i've just heard in the podcast get a much better uh more accurate time index link uh for overcast and put it somewhere where it's going to be front and center in my queue to process later on yeah i love this because I mean, it would be easy enough to make one to pause audio and let you write a note and save it to drafts, but you're actually yanking the, the podcast title, the timestamp. You're making the a user option to adjust the timestamp. I mean, you're really like just dialing this in. And then at the end, just for a flex, you start the audio again. I like mm-hmm. that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I mean, it did, it did very much start out as um, the very basic version, but then yeah. there are little things that niggle at you, and it's like, oh, I could I could improve that a little bit. I could change yeah. that a little bit. And so over time, that's what I did. Could you talk a little bit more about Toolbox Pro for people who may not be familiar with it? Yeah, sure. Um, so there's a fantastic developer called Alex Hay, who um, a couple of years ago, or maybe three years, I, I'd lose track with COVID time, um, made an application, uh, and it was called Toolbox Pro. And it uh, it brings two shortcuts just lots and lots of actions, but not just random actions, really, really useful actions. So actions that you just kind of feel are missing from uh, from shortcuts. And it's like, if you can't find it in shortcuts, there's, there's at least a 50% chance you're going to be able to find it in Toolbox Pro. Um, it kind of feels like it should it should be like the next evolution of an app to be Sherlocked. It's like everything in it should really be in shortcuts naturally. So um, it's just hugely powerful. It's one of my favorite helper applications for shortcuts. Yeah. And we had Alex on the Automators podcast as a guest on Automators 42. We'll put that in. But you're right. I mean, he's just looking for all the low-hanging fruit that Apple's not picking, and he's adding it to this little app. And it's a very easy purchase. Like like this one, you're using it here. Uh, there is no action that says, is audio playing? Like, we just want to know, is the audio coming out of the iPhone? And he he added that action. Otherwise, you wouldn't have been able to do this without a lot of uh, hijinks. I'm not even sure I would be able to manage it with that. Yeah, I, it's just, it's perfect. There's just one simple action, drop it in, done. While we're talking about shortcuts, there's another one that you're uh, willing to share with the audience that I thought was fun too. And that one is uh, called Go Float. <laughs> Good name, by the way. <laughs> tell us, and that, that, that one's with the Mac. So tell us about that one. Yeah. So um, the Mac has uh, a different set of applications, um, if you like, uh, that you can make use of that have shortcuts support. Um, and so what I thought I'd do is I, I thought I'd choose one where there was another app, which wasn't Toolbox Pro, but you, that used uh, an app that gives you a huge amount of functionality in shortcuts that is otherwise missing. And it's one that we've mentioned already. It's it's Better Touch Tool. Yes. Um, it just seems to add so many. It, you, you, 
when you kind of hear the description of better touch tool, you wouldn't imagine it would have the support for shortcuts that it does. But it does add all these extra actions. Um, so I kind of I want an excuse to give it a mention, really, uh, in one of the examples. Um, so one of the situations I find myself in is that I will be uh, working on something, and usually for me, I want to reference some documentation. But I always have so many windows open on my Mac that sometimes things get lost behind other things, and I have to reselect to bring it forward. Um, and what this shortcut does is it allows me to take um, the current uh, Safari tab and open it in a floating window that just floats over the top of other windows. Um, and so you could use it for, uh, watching, watching a video or something, but, uh, I do tend to use it for reference documentation when I'm coding or scripting something. Um, and it just, it just helps keep everything front and center. Yeah. And, uh, and I call better touch tool in the shortcuts for Mac field guide, the Trojan horse of shortcuts, because it feels like, all the stuff that Apple didn't want to or didn't have time to do with shortcuts, he put in Better Touch Tool. There are so many functions in Better Touch Tool for shortcuts that, like, if you own Better Touch Tool already, open shortcuts and just make a test shortcut and just go look at all the Better tool, Touch Tool actions. Like, there are actions in there that completely change the way you can automate. Like, select a menu item. You know, that is like the get out of jail free card of automation. You know, go to an app, go to the file menu and hit, you know, new new document or whatever. Just think of whatever app you use. If it has a menu item, you can now automate it, but you have to have better touch tool installed because shortcuts doesn't include that feature, but he did. And that's just one example. There's a bunch of them like that where you can automate things that just is not possible elsewise. In fact, Going back, when we interviewed Apple, because they came on the Mac Power Users right after they announced Shortcuts for Mac, yeah, I actually asked them some questions about that. Like, are you guys going to support menu bar automation and some of the like historical ways that we have hacked together motivation or uh, automations? And he kind of, you know, in a nice way, kind of said, no, that's not, we're not interested in that. But you know what? Now you get it because it's in better touch tool. Stephen, when it comes to automating shortcuts itself, because you can have shortcuts uh, f- basically fire at different inputs, time intervals, location, that sort of thing, uh, are you taking use of any of those tools? And if you are, do you have an example you could share? Yeah, yeah, sure. I, I mean, I find them, I find the uh, the shortcuts automations uh, really useful. I do wish. Uh, they would have included that on the Mac as well, but um... no. uh, especially <laughs> on the Mac, like. How many people have a Mac that is always on, you know, even if it goes to sleep, like how great would it be if shortcuts could wake up my Mac and do something in the middle of the night? It it kills me that it's not there. <laughs> there are ways to do it, but it it's not built in. And that is, I find that frustrating as well. I do have uh, quite a few set on my, my phone. Um, they're mainly uh, based around the time of day. Um, so I have ones that, uh, that set my watch face uh, and my focus mode at different times, particularly when I go to, uh, just before I go to bed at night. Um, I do have one that uh, that runs when I connect the phone to power. That checks if I'm on my home Wi-Fi and if it's after nine o'clock. And then what it will do is it it basically the assumption is if it's after nine o'clock, I'm at home. I I'm put my phone on to charge. I'm actually going to bed. So it'll turn off my bedroom lights and it will connect to. I've got a Raspberry Pi in my bedroom running. Um, a piece of software called SharePort Sync, which is 
it basically lets the Raspberry Pi function as uh, an airport, uh, an, an airplay destination. And so I have that hooked up to a little speaker under my bed and it will connect to that. And then it will set a custom uh, white noise uh, playback running for 50 minutes from an app called Dark Noise, which I've got a lovely mix in there. It's kind of a very peaceful outdoorsy rain campsite sort of mix and it just i find that very relaxing and that just helps me kind of drift off at the end of the day yeah dark noises is, is fantastic it's definitely i think david and i's uh combined favorite uh noise generator and it works everywhere and being able to uh to automate with it is is really cool too yeah i mean so many of the apps in that category are just kind of junky and this one was made with so much care you can really tell and it's very automation friendly and of course it came over to the mac i love that i love that my 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 kids love the little animated icons as well it's just it's perfect yeah what 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 are you most excited about automating on mac with shortcuts that you haven't been able to do yet but you can kind of see coming down the road oh that's a good question (laughs) so i think at the moment i Anything that I, I can't do, I tend to fall back to scripting or to um, working with keyboard maestro or something yeah. to achieve. But actually, the thing I, I'm really looking forward to is um, Toolbox Pro coming to the Mac. Um, unfortunately, I don't. I I, th- I think I'm signed up to the beta, but I haven't actually jumped onto a beta version yet because uh, I've been trying to keep keep my Mac nice and stable for recording this podcast, in fact. Um, but at some point, I'm, I'm going to switch that. And I, th- I think there's going to be some additions in there that I think are probably the most exciting sort of thing. And that will open up new opportunities for, for things to do, I think. Stephen, you've got a lot of shortcuts. How are you like organizing them? That's, I think, another thing a lot of people run into with shortcuts as you get more of them. How do you organize them? How do you find what you want? Before Shortcuts had uh, folders, I was using an app to uh, organize and launch the Shortcuts that, that kind of did provide folders. Uh, but since that's come along, I've kind of switched over more to doing it in the application itself. But what I kind of brought with me was uh, a naming convention that I use for my Shortcuts. So uh, I have just usually just prefixes and things that help me kind of identify the shortcuts and separate them out and helps me understand which folder I should file them into and things like that very, very quickly. And then if I want to just have purely the name, then I can always just have a different shortcut that calls that one. But that's kind of the main thing that I do to kind of help me organize them. So I have various, I have quite a lot of folders for shortcuts for, for different purposes and I will will move things into each other. I even have a shortcut to help me remember the names the naming convention for some of them uh some that some i use regularly some are not so much so i have that little helper there and then um i also uh document my shortcuts uh when they when they start getting complicated um and so uh, just to mention obsidian again i'm afraid um i will i will add pages into obsidian and i'll use um there's an app called hook that i know you're familiar with david that uh, on my Mac I will use to create bidirectional links between shortcuts and the note page in Obsidian so that I can quickly look something up and get the details. I'm like, oh, why did I I approach this like this? Why didn't I do this? Oh, I've made a note of it in there. Um, So I only do that for like the the more complex shortcuts. If it's only a few actions, it's it's usually pretty obvious. But um, 
yeah, I kind of, I try and name things accurately, name them in standard ways. It's, it's all kind of good developer uh, habits, I think. Um, and then document what I've done. Yeah, I think that's always helpful when you, you download a shortcut from somebody and if they've got some information in there, even if it doesn't explain exactly what's going on, but to give you some idea of, hey, these are the different parameters or different options you can set. Uh, I find it frustrating if I download an example from somebody and I open it up and can't easily tell what's going on. And so I I, I definitely appreciate that about what you do. Your documentation uh, is is always very clear. I have a tendency not to build huge, complex shortcuts. Um, most of the shortcuts I build are for my own personal use. But uh, again, kind of coming from a developer background, um, you try not to write huge, long sections of code. If you can avoid it, you will try and break things up into routines, into functions, into separate libraries. Um, and I've I've been doing that with um, shortcuts since it, since it was workflow, really, and trying to break down uh, sets of actions within shortcuts into reusable chunks. Um, and so that will be a shortcut that I then call from other shortcuts. And that gives me one place to maintain it. it gives me uh, one common piece of action to use. So I don't have to keep copying and pasting it into other ones and updating them all. It's just one place in there, call that. And that's that makes it much easier to build those complex ones. However, it does make it really hard to share it with anyone else there's no there's no way of packaging multiple shortcuts together so that would be a nice addition to see apple come up with but uh, i don't know if that'll ever happen this episode of the mac power users is brought to you by squarespace go to squarespace.com mpu and make your next move enter offer code mpu at checkout to get 10 percent off your first purchase squarespace is the all-in-one platform for building your brand and growing your business online With Squarespace, you can stand out with a beautiful website and engage your audience and sell anything, your products, services, even the content you create. And Squarespace has got you covered for all of that. With Squarespace, you can use insights to grow your business. If you've ever wondered where your site visits and sales are coming from and which channels are most effective, you can analyze all of that in Squarespace. Once you've got the data, you can improve your website and build a marketing strategy based on your top keywords or most popular products and content. Also, Squarespace sites look amazing. You can get started with their best-in-class website templates and customize them to fit your needs. It's as easy as browsing the category of your business to find the perfect starting place, and then you can customize it with just a few clicks. If you get stuck with SEO tools, you're going to be great with Squarespace. You can use the suite of integrated features and useful guides that help maximize the prominence among search results. All of this stuff is in Squarespace. And you hear podcasters all the time talking about Squarespace, but I'm going to tell you, I mean, it really is that good. I have used it for several of my personal sites. I still use it. I've recommended it to my family and friends and business colleagues. When I was at the big law firm, we got a multi-thousand dollar bid for someone to build us a website. So I just asked the boss, hey, just give me a couple days. Let me make one for the firm. And I made one with Squarespace. It had more features than what the professional website, quote unquote professional, right, uh, was supposed to give us. It was easier to use. And anybody in the firm that had the keys could make updates. It was just way better. And it just cost dollars a month rather than thousands. I use it and I recommend it all the time. If you want to get a presence on the internet, I can think of no better place to start. So head to squarespace.com slash MPU for a free trial with no credit card required. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code MP 
P-U to save that 10% on your first purchase of a website or domain. Once again, that's squarespace.com slash MPU. And when you decide to sign up, use the offer code MPU to get that 10% off your first purchase and to show your support for the Mac Power Users. Our thanks to Squarespace for their support of the Mac Power Users and all of Relay FM. On past episodes of Mac Power Users, we've spoken a good bit about Alfred. I know it just got an update, and we, we talked about that in a recent feedback episode. Uh, but Stephen, you do quite a bit with Alfred, including developing some workflows. I'm curious how you got into that and some things that you've been able to do with those tools. Yes, I kind of discovered Alfred, I think, when I got my first MacBook Pro and I started really looking around for software and things like that. So probably, as I say, about 2010, something like that. Uh, I, I loved it immediately. Um, that was a piece of software that I hadn't really, at that point, come across any software like that on the piece, the Windows PCs. There was nothing to kind of immediately launch. There was Windows Search. And I'm sure there probably were apps out there, but I'd simply not come across one. And then suddenly there was Spotlight. And then Alfred was like spotlight supercharged. Um, and I'd never come across Quicksilver or Launchbar or even heard of anything at that point because I was I was really still just getting into the Mac. So for me, it was totally revolutionary to kind of come across this, this thing that I could do. It almost gave me like a command line idea, but in a little floating window that I could kick anything off from, start anything, run anything. I used that... Uh, daily for for working with uh, things on my mac and then in version two they introduced workflows and it 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 does remind me a lot of uh sort of the ways that things like um shortcuts are put together except you can have branching uh rather than just being a straight list of action 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 you can move in different directions you can have different conditions that set things going um and I started uh, working with that, and um, it was quite similar to Automator in the way you could drag blocks together. It was very straightforward, I found, and um, I ended up creating a, a quite a popular workflow at the time, which was for searching Evernote. Um, Evernote isn't something I use anymore, but uh, at the time, I was a huge proponent of Evernote. Um, I had everything in it, and I used it regularly. Um, and then... I kind of didn't really do much publicly for several years. I still had workflows uh, for a lot of my personal projects. Um, And then in the last few years, I just seem to have ended up creating several workflows for my own use that uh, were more applicable to other people. And as far as possible, I like to try and share stuff that I've created if I think it's going to be of use of some sort of benefits for the people, because then the effort that I've put in is kind of, uh, it, 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 there's a, there's a, a greater expansive benefit from it. So if I spend an hour and it saves me an hour, then I break even, but if it saves someone else an hour as well, then that's, that's a big bonus for me. So I try and share as much as I can. And so I started sharing, uh, quite a few of these workflows that I'd, uh, I'd built. Yeah, there's a couple that you've made in particular I want to point out for listeners that they may be interested in. I think the first big one you did that I was aware of was Dr. Drafts. Tell us a little bit about that one. Yeah, sure. Um, So as I've already mentioned, I'm a a huge fan of Drafts. I've been using it since, I think, the the earliest versions um, back on my, I think, even on my iPod Touch. And 
Drafts is a an app where you can, I, I use it for, I consider it a, a text processing app, but uh, you, it's it's an app for capturing text and storing it or doing all sorts of things with it. It's grown so much. And uh, when it came to the Mac, I started looking at ways that I could automate it and interact with it more. And over time, I built up an Alfred workflow, which I, I called Dr. Drafts, because um, I use a, a trigger keyword to trigger most of the actions. And I use DR for drafts. So it kind of, that's where the Dr. Drafts came from. And I suspect at this point, it's probably the biggest workflow for Alfred out there. I don't know for sure, but it's it's pretty big. It's big enough to, that it warrants it. It's, I've got an entire website just to document it and all the features it has. If you want to do something with drafts uh, and you want to do it externally and you want to do it quickly through Alfred, the chances are that there's something in there to to help you do that. And it's designed to be extensible as well. So it's designed so that there are reusable components that you can drop into your own workflows and customize it and build things out. So I would say it's it's pretty powerful and it took me a long time to build uh, and even longer to document, I think. Yeah. Yeah, so you you became a software distributor, honestly, with this Doctor Draft <laughs> workflow. I and I'm not saying that like facetiously. It it is people rely on this, you know. And if you use drafts and you use Alfred, um, this is the the binding between the peanut butter and the chocolate. You really need to you really need to check this thing out. What are some of the interesting things you've heard people doing with Doctor Drafts? So I think most of the things that people have done have actually just been using um, the flows and the actions that are kind of built into it. But there have been uh, some people who uh, have built their own daily logs um, from it. So people will uh, pop up Alfred, type in a quick phrase um, to trigger what they want to do, type in their entries, and then have uh, Dr. Drafts behind the scenes build them uh, an entry that goes into some sort of daily log of some sort. And so there's people, there is an example on the website of how you can build your own. And then people have kind of taken that and customized it and built out their own more personalized ways of doing it with extra details. So I've had a few, a few people who've kind of come to me for a little bit of help on, on customizing that, but it's usually pretty straightforward to do. And I think that's probably the main one that, that people get into is this, again, it comes back to this quick capture. Um, but not even going into drafts at all. It's like one line straight into Alfred, captured, timestamped, anything you need to go with it. Yeah, I mean that's that's the idea. Like you, uh, drafts is the capture tool, and this is like improves the capture. <laughs> it's great. And then um, bypass is the other. We've got others. We're going to go through a couple of these. But bypass is another one that I think everybody should have installed. If you have Alfred, um, tell us about what it is and and why you made it yeah so uh bypass is uh, a companion workflow for apple shortcuts so <laughs> a shortcut is a quicker way of getting somewhere as is a bypass so i like to kind of name things in amusing ways if i can so bypass is for is basically a, a launcher in the main for apple shortcuts um it lets you run shortcuts in a variety of ways so you can just call a shortcut you can call a shortcut and pass some text to it if you need a parameter uh, Alfred lets you work with files as well. So you can actually trigger uh, a shortcut by name and get it to pa- get Alfred to pass a file to it. Um, but also uh, I've added some extra bits and pieces in that lets you copy various bits of information about shortcuts. So copy the name or copy a URL to launch it or copy some Apple script to launch it or uh, 
the the latest one that I did was I added uh, for anyone who uses um, the Pop Clip app, so that adds a, a custom context menu um, which you can add uh, additional functionality to. Um, the developer of Pop Clip uh, a little while ago added a way to create these installation scripts. The Pop Clip it's basically looks like a something like a URL. It's a, it's a piece of what they call YAML. Um, you can select that, click on it, pop clip will recognize it and will install things. And so I, I created a little um, action within Bypass that would let you select a shortcut and create this installation snippet. So you could select your shortcut, produce that, put it into whatever text editor you like, open it in pop clip, and then that will immediately give you a way to launch that shortcut from PopClip. So you would use that to select some text and say you had a shortcut that changed things to uppercase. Um, you could trigger that from uh, PopClip. It's not a great example because that's already built in, but that sort of idea. I mean, it essentially lets you create your own PopClip pop clip plugins <laughs> from shortcut actions, which, you know, that opens up a whole lot of possibilities. Yeah, and this this just gives you a quick way to to create the installation script yeah and so now apple with ventura is going to have the ability to search and launch shortcuts from spotlight but i can guarantee you it's not going to have all the features that bypass us <laughs> so you know it, it's okay like if you want to just launch them in a couple months from your spotlight that's fine but if you want to go deeper you can do that right now with bypass and like passing arguments to them it, it, it is a very impressive plugin um and uh, anybody who has a mac has shortcuts at this point i think this is one that's worth checking out if you've got alfred and then and the the third one in this series that i think is is also very useful is if you use keyboard maestro tell us about conductor yeah so yeah for a keyboard maestro you need a conductor someone who controls the orchestra so conductor is a companion workflow for keyboard maestro and so very similar to Bypass, the, the main purpose is uh, just to let you trigger macros by name. But it also has other um, functionality built in, so you can trigger a macro after a delay. Uh, you can open macros. You can copy links to Keyboard Maestro macros in various formats. You can just get the URL. You can get a markdown link. Uh, you, can get a markdown, you can get a link to open the macro or run the macro. The idea was just to kind of build on that basic launching idea and again let you get to lots of additional information just to make it that bit more useful um and basically since i've been using a better touch tool um i'm using conductor i used conductor a lot to get the trigger urls that i needed to then be able to put into better touch tool to uh, to trigger those keyboard maestro macros yeah i didn't explain that earlier in keyboard maestro you can have a macro um, triggered by a special URL. Like if someone goes and touches a URL, then something on your Mac happens. It's I covered it in the Keyboard Maestro Field Guide. It's a really powerful way to launch um, automations. And so what, what he's doing is just getting that URL for each one and then adding it to a button via Better Touch Tool, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, launching by URLs is just so useful because anywhere that supports... Um, a URL with that format, you can launch from there. So you can you can stick it in a text document or a, a markdown document and launch macros from in there and things like that. So 
URLs are great. <laughs> yeah, you can even do it like from shortcuts on your phone when you're not even in the same building as your Mac, and it'll it'll still happen. Yeah, so that's a slightly different URL to do that, but yeah. Yeah. Alfred's new version has simplified this whole process of building automations. I'd, I'd even argue a bit that they've democratized it. They It's a lot more um, drag and drop than it used to be. Uh, what are your impressions of it? And, and uh, what do you suggest for people who want to kind of get into doing some of this Alfred automation? Sure. Um, yeah. So in version five, there are a lot of, uh, there are a lot of nice visual changes and things are just a little bit smoother and they've added, um, when you're building workflows, uh, they've now added a, a workflow palette that makes things a lot easier to find. So that's, that generally makes it more accessible to, uh, people who are just starting out. So, Inbuilt into Alpha, and there has been for many versions now, are a lot of example workflows. And so they're a really good place to start learning about how to, to build your own workflows um, because they start out quite simple. They're well commented um, and it kind of leads you through the process. And then from there, workflows are, are, are not locked in any way. You can see what's inside them. You can look at them. You can modify them. So much like if you download someone's shortcut, if you download a workflow for Alfred, you can open it up, take a look at it, and start to learn about how that one works as well. Um, and as usual, the best way to kind of start with um, coding or scripting or building something is to take an existing uh, instance and try modifying it um, rather than trying to build something from scratch and not knowing where to begin. Um, but in, ter- in terms of... Um, version five of Alfred and the sort of new features and things that kind of they've brought in. Um, they have some really useful uh, things in there that are, are brand new. Uh, one of them is um, prefabs, which allows you to take collections of actions and pre-build them that if you need to reuse them between uh, workflows, that's very handy if you have kind of standard ones that you use. Um, I kind of like it for even just single blocks, but pre-configured to, uh, to ways that I like to use them and I like to configure them. That's very useful for that. And the other thing is, uh, that's brand new, is automation blocks. Um, previously in Alfred, uh, if you wanted to do something that may be a little bit sophisticated, you would turn to doing some sort of Apple script or command line script um, to do that. And people would build them themselves and they kind of disappear into the ether behind the workflow, if you like. Whereas uh, with automation blocks, the guys at Alfred are running with crayons. Um, they've built these automation blocks for common things that people might want to do. And they've built all the scripting behind it and put it into blocks that you can use in your workflow. So that that takes a lot of the complexity of doing some of the harder things and makes it much easier, much more accessible. And it, it looks like it's something that can be really expanded in future it it is almost like action the automations in workflow are almost like in, in workflow in alfred sorry is almost like actions in shortcuts it seems to be something that you could build out as a, a library and maybe even have additional libraries as well yeah and you get an implied promise from the alfred people that these blocks are going to be supported over time whereas historically if you went and got some javascript or apple script off the web to create a custom block and something in the Mac operating system change and that suddenly stopped working. It was really difficult to debug and figure out what, what the cause of the problem was. And and I got bit by that so many times. I feel like we're probably going to have more stable workflows now as a result of this. 
Yes. Yeah. I certainly think uh, the uh, the switch uh, on Python versions and deprecation by Apple of uh, certain command line languages have certainly uh, thrown a spanner in the works of a lot of workflows over the years. Stephen, we always like to talk to guests about some of their favorite apps and services, and you have a list. You came prepared today. Tell us about some of the apps and services that bring you joy and delight. Sure. Well, yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of people's lists when they they come on there. Uh, MPU, so uh, I was I was not going to be uh, left behind on that one. Um, so you're not going to just talk about Microsoft <laughs> Word for 20 minutes? Then... <laughs> no, I'm not going to mention Obsidian either. So. All right. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, so on, on the Mac, um, one of the applications that I'd like to start with is uh, Paletro. If anyone's familiar with um, uh, text editors like Sublime Text, VS Code, or Oh, sorry, Obsidian. Um, <laughs> you might be used to uh, the pop-up command palettes. Uh, so the same sort of idea as um, Alfred, really. Um, you get this pop-up window that lets you interact with an app in some way. Um, well, Paletro brings that to every app. Um, and what it's doing is it's loading in the menu options. But uh, as you said earlier, David, like if you get access to the menus then you have access to like 99.9% of the application's functionality. So it just very quickly lets you get this pop-up palette that gives you access to all these parts of uh, an application right at your fingertips just from the keyboard without having to learn all the keyboard shortcuts. You can just kind of start typing the names and it will filter that list down. Um, I'm just so used to having it in text editors these days. It just feels really natural for me. And I'd, I'd just, I'd really miss it if it wasn't there. Yeah, and I want to second the nomination for this one. I didn't know this existed until Stephen put it in the notes for today. And it's part of setup, so it didn't cost me any more to download it. And like now I get it and I want this. Yeah, this is a good one, gang. So so you just hit a keyboard combination and you get all the menu items under your fingers. And if you like command palettes, why not have a command palette in every app on your Mac? This is a great app. Thanks for sharing this. It's worth pointing out that if you have an app as well that already has a command palette built in, you can exclude it from those apps. So it doesn't conflict with anything. And you can actually keep reusing the same uh, keyboard shortcuts and things as well. Very cool. Yeah, this looks awesome. I'm downloading this right now. (laughs) All right. What else you got for us, Stephen? Okay. um, Keep on the theme. Um, I do like my little pop-up windows that I can start typing things into and action. there's an app by Aptorium called Workspaces or Workspaces 2. It's another launch app, but this time it gives you um, groups of things uh, and notes. So I guess in some ways it, you can use it in a similar sort of way to where you might group things in an app like Bunch or something. Um, you can use it to launch multiple uh, applications or multiple scripts, um, or you can launch them individually. In Alfred, I build a lot of workflows that are kind of personal to me to do certain things that I want to to run apps in certain ways or certain setups. But there are ones which I don't use as frequently, and I can't I can't really assign um, a common phrase to or things like that. So what I do is I, I kind of have it broken down into projects within workspaces, and that just gives me uh, quick access to things that are related together, but I perhaps use less frequently. But I do find it it really useful when I need it, because otherwise I'd spend a long time kind of trying to remember what I called something or where to find it. How do you distinguish doing this here between like setting it up in Keyboard Maestro? Um, So (laughs) 
as as I mentioned earlier, um, Keyboard Maestro tends to be kind of the place where a lot of things end up to be triggered. So I do actually have within Workspace, I have a lot of um, scripts and things. So it's not just apps. Uh, you can have applications, documents, or including scripts, and it will execute those. So I tend to have maybe the, the, the instructions of what to do if it's more complex within Keyboard Maestro, but I'll be using um, something in Workspaces to launch it. But maybe that's held alongside some important documents uh, that are, are relevant to it or um, some other hyperlinks or an, another application that I only use in those circumstances. Yeah, that makes sense. What are some of your other favorite Mac apps? So one that I, I use quite a lot is uh, one called CodeRunner. Um, whilst you can write and run uh, scripts, uh, command line scripts at the command line, um, I just find CodeRunner is is really convenient. Um, I could probably write something in Visual Studio Code or Sublime Text or one of the other sort of bigger editors that I might, I might have and use, but CodeRunner is just really light, really fast. Um, it gives you uh, syntax highlighting, gives you prompts for, for things for whatever language you're working in. And I, I just find it a delight to use. Um, I say it's not as, it's not, maybe not as powerful as uh, a lot of the other editors and things like that that uh, I use. But that's kind of part of the appeal. Um, mm. If I'm just doing a quick bit of shell scripting, just having something that's kind of mentally, I can separate it out and it's very quick, very light. It appears in no time at all and runs things and I get the output in a console inside the app. Um, it just makes, when I'm, I'm experimenting with trying to get a shell script working, it's just ideal for me. It looks like it supports a pretty wide range of languages. So kind of depending on how you want to work, this may be a good fit for a bunch of different people who don't need, like you said, something maybe heavier or more more full-featured. Yeah, it's it's a really lightweight IDE, if you like. With uh, It doesn't have a lot of bells and whistles, but what it does, it does well and it does very quickly. What about on the, the mobile side? Anything there uh, have you excited? Yeah, so... Um, I think earlier this year, um, I came across an app which which has a uh, an unusual name of just Code. Um, <laughs> I think if you look for Code app, um, so w- during my day job and also on my Mac as well, I use uh, Visual Studio Code, which is uh, a text editor that Microsoft uh, created, but is open sourced and it's very powerful. And I, I use that uh, for a lot of the work that I do with drafts. So I do a lot of development of things like actions and things within drafts. I write a lot of JavaScript code for that. Um, but when I'm on uh, my iPad, um, I didn't really have a, a great way of working with uh, the sort of the files behind the scenes that I tend to write in. Um, and then I discovered Kodak, which is, is known to built on Monaco, which is what Visual Studio is based on the visual studio code and so i just found it was it was perfect for working with my drafts code because it would on the mac uh, on the mac when i'm using visual studio code i get my syntax highlighting it pulls in uh, definition files so even for my own functions and things that i've created it will give me documentation about them as i'm writing and using them and code app does this as well i was just blown away that that was actually possible so because i do so much in drafts and i, I kind of tweak code and things that having this available in the the iPad has just kind of transformed the way what I can actually do with my iPad in terms of things with drafts. So uh, I I love it. 
Yeah, you know, they say that you can't develop software on the iPad, but we keep hearing from people that are doing that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it doesn't have Xcode, I'll agree, but there's still a lot that you can do with an iPad these days. Yeah. yeah another one you pointed out that I like um, is Calca. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So, um, Calca is a symbolic calculation app. Um, I use the the ever popular pcalc uh, for my sort of very straightforward calculation needs. But um, if I want to start trying to uh, write notes, for example, to go with my calculations, so I can I'm working through a problem and I need to note down. Well, okay, this has a real name. This this corresponds to uh, the the width of a, a particular room or something, and I can start almost like assigning variables and things. And the symbolic calculator, Calca, lets me kind of build out these instructions. I think it's probably a bit like Solver, but I've been using Calca for ages and it, it it's just really great for kind of helping me think through, I guess, longer mathematical uh, problems that I'm dealing with. Uh, and it's really convenient just being able to have it uh, on my iPhone, on my iPad, and and just work through it. And it's, it's great if I need to template something that I know I'm going to reuse, I can just store a file in calca come back and it's almost like a worksheet that i can just fill in the values and it'll give me the answer at the end and they have a mac version as well right yeah yeah they do um i don't actually use the mac version i only use the ios version um i've never i've never really needed to use the mac one but um when i i, I do miss it when uh, i tend to come across these situations a bit more when i'm working um and so because i'm, I'm working on a, a windows pc uh, i did come across a uh, a web app called NoteCalc that is is pretty similar, and so uh, that that's a, a good alternative. But Calc is really not an expensive app, and it is absolutely solid. It's great. And then I noted that um, Stephen has brought a Marcos Tanaka app to the Mac Power users. Have you noticed how that keeps happening, Stephen? It, it does. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Play is is really cool. Yeah. So. Um, Plays a, a video bookmarking app. Um, it's a brilliant app for saving stuff to watch later in queues that you can set up within the app. I'm the sort of person, I've got so many little projects on the go and I've got so many bits of research that I want to keep track of. And maybe, you know, there's a few things that I want to watch that are maybe some uh, entertainment, things like that. And so as, as soon as this kind of came out, it's like, oh my God, I hadn't realized I needed that, but I absolutely do. And so I got hold of play and it, it's brilliant. It just lets me, I, I find it really useful for sort of categorizing cues of information I want to look at later, particularly around researching certain topics. So if it's buying a new piece of hardware or learning how to use a new piece of software or something like that, I can create a queue, queue various videos up that I find as I'm, I'm looking around and then set aside some time to watch them. And, and you can use play, I think pretty much on every device apart from maybe a watch and it includes shortcut support. I mean, what's not to love about it? Stephen, you also point out another app I had never heard of that I think people who are working both the PC and the Mac side could really benefit from. Tell us about Snapdrop. Yeah, so Snapdrop is uh, a web app, and um, it allows you to share files a little bit like AirDrop. Um, I quite often find that uh, I would have things on my phone i i have an iphone for work and so uh, i would have things on my iphone for work i want to get it to my 
PC or something on my PC that I want to make sure that I get to my iPhone. And there isn't, I don't really have any shared storage or that I, I can use between them. So I could email things, but sometimes I just need to do it quickly. Or sometimes I'm in a meeting and I need to share a file from uh, my PC to someone with an Android device and then someone else with a, uh, an iPhone. And so trying to find a way to share things agnostically and quickly, um, I came across Snapdrop. And so, as I say, it's this web app and it just allows you to connect things together and transfer files via browser. And it's just really convenient. Um, it's not it's not quite as convenient as AirDrop, but it's the next best thing that I've found. Yeah, how does it um, compare in terms of speed? It depends on how quick your network is. Um, I've never seen it uh, run particularly slowly, but I've never tried to transfer uh, particularly huge files. I think, I think the most... Uh, Everything I've I've tried to transfer has been under a hundred megabytes, and it's it's seconds to do that. So, generally speaking, I found it really responsive, but I haven't really pressure tested it with any large files. This episode of MPU is made possible by Sourcegraph. So you've hired a brilliant developer, that's great, but now you have to spend time getting them on board. And if your company is growing, this is something you're going to need to do over and over. But it's a big undertaking each time. One of the biggest challenges for new hires is getting up to speed with the project their new team has already been working on. And this can be tricky if the code bases your developers are working in are already large. Thankfully, Sourcegraph makes it easy to move quickly even in big code bases. Developers know that knowledge is the most useful when they can find it. Centralization is helpful, but given the fact that most companies store knowledge in at least two different locations, how do you work to make knowledge accessible to those who need it? As a code intelligence platform, Sourcegraph gives developers what they need to drive their own learning over time and in different situations. Teams without Sourcegraph need to rely on asking colleagues or reviewing out-of-date documentation, which is cumbersome and time-consuming. But with Sourcegraph, every developer can search across millions of repositories to find specific code, saving time for themselves and everyone else. So when questions do come up, you know it's the big stuff that's worth the extra time. Sourcegraph was created to make developers' lives easier. Today, they work with leading companies across every industry, including three of the five top tech companies, plus companies like PayPal, Uber, Plaid, GE, Reddit, Atlassian, and more. Visit about.sourcegraph.com to learn more. That's about.sourcegraph.com to find out why some of the biggest tech companies in the world use Sourcegraph and to see what it can do for yours. Check out the link in the show notes to let them know you heard about them from us. Our thanks to Sourcegraph for supporting Mac Power users. All right. So we, as we publish this, we're just a few days away from the iPhone event. Even though we're really not a news and speculation show, how can we resist a few days before the event, right? So, uh, so guys, let's just go around the table a little bit and talk. Um, iPhone, of course, is what we're going to get the big star of the show. Um, the, the rumors as we are hearing them is that it's going to be no mini, but a big size standard iPhone. Any thoughts on that? I think it makes a ton of sense. People like bigger screens and that also means you get better battery life because they can cram more, more battery in there. I think the people who have hung on to the iPhone mini will be sad, my spouse included, but I think in the the broader market, this makes a, a lot of sense. And 
a lot of other manufacturers have bigger sort of mid-range phones and Apple doesn't. To get the biggest phone, you're 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 paying the biggest amount of money. And to, yeah. to break that a little bit, I think is is good. And I suspect this phone will be uh will prove to be very popular. Well, I, I think it makes sense, but I don't know why the mini has to go away at the same time. I don't yeah. you know. Yeah. It's like there can it's like um Sith Lords. There can only be two, apparently. <laughs> um now, the, the Stephen Miller, this is your year to update. I mean, what are you thinking um, with that news? I mean, do, do you know what you want? I'm not. I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I think it's it's quite sad because obviously the, the minis were really popular with with a lot of people. There are people who the bigger phones they just don't fit in their hands properly, or they're going to end up dropping them. Um, yeah, I I think that's that's very sad. I I kind of hope that they'll they'll do something for people who want a smaller device. Uh, even if it's an older model, just just something because that, that seems to be. It doesn't really feel like Apple to be kind of putting themselves out of the market <laughs> for for people who want a smaller device. But personally, I, I'm quite a tall, large person uh, with big hands. I'm really looking forward to getting my hands on a, a nice big new iPhone. I I'll tell you that the one we just did a meetup on the Max Market Labs on this, and the thing I am most excited about is the rumor of camera improvements. Mm-hmm. I mean this is the year that we're supposed to get the big jump in megapixels and that will be irresistible to me. Yeah. There was a a late breaking rumor too about the ultra wide really coming up in quality. Even on the 13 pro, there's a noticeable difference in quality between the main camera and the ultra wide. I think bringing that closer together is going to be good. Yeah, and that that is on the Pro, I would assume. But do you think we're going to get the upgraded camera on the standard iPhone as well? I don't know. I mean, the rumors have said that the the standard iPhone is going to keep the same chip as we had in the 13. The design is going to be the same. If the camera's the same too, it's like, wh- why is the iPhone 14 a thing? Like, what makes it better than the 13? So. Maybe we'll see like the ultra wide get better on the regular phone too, but not the higher megapixel main shooter. I'm just, I'm very, very interested in seeing what the, the standard phone gets because so far the rumors have said, and we're still a few way, a few days out. There's not, doesn't seem to be a lot going on there in the regular yeah. iPhone land. Yeah. And look, yeah. most people are like Steven who don't upgrade every year and who, who have a, two, three, four, five-year cycle. So the year-over-year thing doesn't matter as much as it used to, but to have two consecutive phones that are basically the same would be would be unusual. And so I suspect some of this stuff will trickle down to the standard phone. It's just a matter of, of what. Yeah, and, and on the point of a better sensor, I am as interested in that for video purposes as I am for film purposes. Yeah. I think... Like they, they've got a lot of interesting video features. I like cinematic mode better than most people do, but it's limited to 1K. You know, if you put a 40 megapixel sensor in there, maybe we can get even 4K cinematic mode. Um, I don't know. It's I am that that's what I'm most excited about. What, what what do you guys think about all these rumors around the always on screen? And and do you think that's something you'd be interested in? I certainly think I'd be. I'd be interested in the uh, the always on screen. I mean, obviously, there's been all the development around the 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 home screen on the on the beaters. Um, I think that would be really useful. Um, when I'm sat at my 
desk, I have my phone charging on a little dock in front of me. So being able to glance up and see uh, all the information, even if I'm not looking at it directly um, to kind of trigger the screen to come on or something, I think that's that's going to be um, very useful as long as I can get the information that I want to be on the screen. Um, that's going to be the question for me. What about you, Stephen? Hack it. Yeah, I think I think they're definitely going to do it. I mean, the complications that show up on the lock screen in the beta, they're they're begging for it. And it's worked well on the watch, I think. And so, yeah, this this feels like a lock for me. Uh, I think it will be a pro phone only feature because they they're probably going to have to tweak the screen some uh, from what they have now. But yeah, I would... I'm the same. I'm in the same boat as Steven. I think it'd be really useful, especially at my desk, just to be able to glance over and and have, you know, those little bits of information available all the time. Yeah, it may change the way I store my phone because I lay it down now on a puck and I may have to prop it up now because mm-hmm. I feel like it's going to actually be useful information. The, um, the, uh, uh, one of the things it seems like it's a done deal is all the, the notch changes. You know, historically now since the iPhone 10, we've had the kind of the big notch across the top. Everybody lost their mind about it for about a month and then forgot (laughs) about it. And then now on the iPhone Pro, it looks like it's going to have two little cutouts, like one for a camera and one for probably the the face ID sensor array. And it looks almost like a little eye. There's like an elongated little notch and then a little dot next to it. Like Mm -hmm. it looks like a kind of letter I turned on its side. And I feel like my prediction is this is the next thing people are going to lose their mind about for a month and then forget about it. <laughs> but I don't know. What, are you guys worked up about that? Or do you have thoughts on the notch changes for the Pro, if that if that's the case? I just wonder what they're going to do with the extra pixels. I mean, yeah. why? what what are they for? You know, you're, you're getting yeah. these ex, this extra screen estate, but what's going to go in there? Yeah. Yeah, uh, my guess is not much. <laughs> um, I, you know, I don't think they're going to make a, a a big change there. But you know, changing the look of the phone is important uh, in a lot of markets, and it does help spur sales. You know, I think I'm like basically everybody else where I don't see the notch. I don't think about the notch. Like it's completely faded into the background. I do think, though, this will give the phone a fresh new look, and that's important. Um, but I'm not holding my breath for any major, any major changes in terms of what we get up there at the at the top of the screen. Yeah, I do think, though, for some people, though, that is a big deal. It's like, hey, look at me! I got the new iPhone. And, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. And in parts of the yeah. world, that's a huge deal socially. And yeah. so uh, Apple, you know, wants to tap into that and. They were on this kind of three-year cycle in terms of design, right? We had the 10, 10s, and the 11 all kind of be the same. And we've had the 12, 13, and now 14. So maybe this buys them another year with the flat sides. Look, if they never moved away from the flat sides, I'd be happy. I love the flat-sided look and feel. But uh, we'll see, I guess, uh, what this means. But yeah, I'm excited to see. Anytime there's a form factor change, it's always always exciting. Yeah, I'm like you, man. I am not, the flat sides have not got old for me yet. I uh, I really like that design of the phone. And then in terms of also aesthetics, the the rumor, I mean, who knows if it's true or not, is purple. That will be you know every year they have like a unique color. Yeah. Um, I immediately thought of Rosemary Orchard co-hosts and automators who, if it's purple, she'll just buy it. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it's probably not for me. To be honest, with you. <laughs> we haven't seen it yet. We don't even know if it's true or not, but. Um, 
Stephen, are you going to run out and get a purple phone if that's the case? Probably not. I do like purple, but I'm I'm tend to be more a black or a space gray kind of guy. <laughs> Especially if you're going to hold on to it for four years, right? It's like that purple might not look great in two years, you know. What about you, Stephen Hackett? You going to get a purple one? No, I did the Sierra Blue this time, which has been a lot of fun. But I think uh, silver and white may call me back this time. The the other thing that I am interested in for this event, I think is going to be an interesting story, is the the rugged or the pro Apple. There's a new category of Apple Watch apparently coming. And this isn't as sure as some of the other stuff we've talked about, but it seems pretty sure uh, that, you know, we've historically had the, you know, the aluminum Apple Watch and then the higher grade materials, titanium, stainless but they've always had the same guts on the inside. But it seems like Apple is about to announce some kind of pro version of the Apple Watch that is more than just different materials, that it actually has different features, probably different silicon inside. And, you know, the Apple Watch has always been a device where whether you bought the most expensive one or the least expensive one, you got the same features. But now that may change. What do you guys think about that? To me, that that sounds like a natural progression in the maturity of the product, really. I mean, when all these products start, you get one choice. Um, it was quite unusual, I think, just to have like two different watch sizes. So I, I, I do wonder if this is what we're seeing is the Apple Watch just maturing and starting to get a little bit divergent, starting to bring in different features that suit different people in different roles and different areas and different pursuits. So I, I, I'm quite interested by it. Um, Particularly if it is rugged, I, I think I have a, a terrible habit of uh, bashing my Apple Watch against things. I'm I'm amazed I haven't broken my screen yet. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, you know, as someone who has done that several times, I'm a I'm a fan of uh, something more rugged. <laughs> you know, I don't know how much bigger I want to go. I, I have whatever the Series Seven, the big one is, and like I honestly can't go much bigger on my wrists. And so we will. Uh, I guess we'll see what that what that entails, but definitely interested in it. Yeah, I agree. It's it's a total natural thing to do. Look, they've done it with the phone, they've done it with the iPads. I mean, from the for years and years now, like two decades, they've had a consumer and a professional laptop line, desktop line. So it's a it's a very natural to me looking at the Apple Watch and be like, yeah, that, I could see two lines coming out of this. Yeah, I, I was originally offended by it. I thought, no, you know, the Apple Watch should be something where everybody gets the same one. And it took me a while, but it then, you know, like you guys, it's like, oh, well, actually, that's what they do on everything. And and that allows one one in the labs discussion we had on this. One of the uh, the members made a great point of like, well, what if there's a feature that they can't scale up? Mm-hmm. but they want to try it anyway. You know, maybe there's a new medical sensor or something where you can't get, you know, 50 million of them like you need for, you know, the usual watch run. But if you had a higher price version that sold a, you know, fraction of that number, then you could add this feature to it. And that makes a lot of sense to me. So I, I've come around on it as well. Um, I, my one fear is that they don't make it too expensive because I've now pledged my watch budget this year to St. Jude. <laughs> That's right. And, I, and I'm not sure what Steven's going to do to me. It's like he's kind of silent. I, I don't uh-huh. know what all this means, but um, we'll see. The uh, There are other rumors as well. Um, AirPods Pro, they've been talking about that in the rumor mill for like a year, and we haven't seen them. So that's something. Uh, you guys have any... Uh, 
predictions, wishes, dreams, thoughts on AirPods Pro? I mean, it seems like it's time. They've done this every couple of years. And I mean, I use the AirPods too. So like I'm not in the market for the Pro ones, I don't think. But a lot of people are and a lot of people like them. And yeah, it seems like it's uh, it's time. You know, I don't feature wise, you know, better battery life is always, I think, the top of the list for AirPods. But maybe they can do even more with the noise canceling and We'll see. I don't. I don't see an AirPods Pro refresh being major, but it's kind of making everything a little bit nicer. I think is what most people would look for. And and now's the time to do it with the holidays around the corner. AirPods make great holiday gifts. Yeah. Somebody. I don't know. One of you two wrote Apple TV in the the notes here. What is that? What is an Apple TV? I've never heard of that. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. Are, are we going to get an update to the Apple TV? Is is one due? Is this a thing where they're like, hey, we got it 4K, stop, you know, you got yeah, I don't know. I mean, they wrapped it a year ago or a year and a half ago with the new remote. Um, so I don't, I don't know. I mean, the thing is too expensive, right? And I don't, I haven't seen rumors about this for a September event. So I don't, I don't think we're going to see this next week, but they should cut the price in general because it's bananas how much it costs. Yeah, no, I, I bought a TV for the indoor studios and now I have to buy an Apple TV. So that's going to be another 150 bucks or whatever they charge for it. That's no fun. I, I'll tell you, I have a dream. It's not going to happen. It's certainly not this event is that Apple gets back into the Wi-Fi business and takes HomePods, Apple TVs and Wi-Fi airports or whatever they call them and makes a a product ecosystem out of them. I'd love to see Apple like use their talent to allow us to kind of build that out in our homes. And uh, it's just a thought, but I'm not sure it's ever going to come true. All right. Well, I don't want to end a downer. You guys think we're going to get a tease of any, uh, any new products, like something that goes on your face. (laughs) (laughs) Who knows? There's always a chance. <laughs> Who knows? I mean, the iPhone is the biggest event of the year. Last time they had something new was the Apple Watch, and they tacked it to the iPhone 6 and 6 Plus event. So they've done that. The iPad Pro was announced with uh, the iPhone 6S. So like, if there's something big and new, this will be the time that we see it. Other than Mac stuff, we're not going to see Macs here. That's for October probably. But is this the time? I don't know. We talked about it so long. I don't even like... I don't even want to make a prediction because who knows, but if we were going to see something that you put on your face, I think it will be with an iPhone or, or some big, big standalone event. Yeah. I I could see them releasing something that you strapped to your face three days after this show drops three months or three years. And yeah. none of them would surprise me. Who knows? <laughs> <You know? laughs> who knows? It really feels like that time. The last time I feel like I felt like this was the lead up to the iPad because the iPad was a pretty poorly kept secret. Like yeah. basically everyone knew Apple was working on a tablet and it was a matter of, is it at this event? Is it at WWC? Is it this event? And they, they ended up doing their own in, in January. But yeah, that's kind of how I feel with this. Like it could be whenever and whenever it is, we'll, we'll deal with it then. Yeah, but if I had to bet a nickel, I'd say it gets its own event, and it's not the iPhone event. But Yeah, I, I lean that way too, I think. All right. Well, either way, uh, 
this is all going to, you know, we're going to all will be revealed a few days after this show drops. Uh, the next episode of Mac Power Users, Steve and I are going to go into what the announcements are, what they mean. Steven's going to spec out my watch, my my St. Jude watch for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're going to have a good time. So, and, and also both of us have been running the beta. So we've got a bunch of notes on IO 16. We're going to be sharing that with you next week too. Uh, in the meantime, uh, Stephen Miller, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and coming in today. Um, everybody go check out Thought Asylum. It's such a great resource. If you're interested in the stuff we talk about here, Stephen's going to have something that you like. Um, we'll put links in for uh, Stephen's Twitter as well. And also his growing YouTube channel, which we're going to be talking about here in a minute on more P, uh, more power users. Uh, but um, Stephen, thanks again for coming in. My pleasure. We are the Mac Power Users. You can find us over on relay.fm slash MPU. Thank you to our sponsors today, and that's our friends over at SaneBox, Electric, Squarespace, and SourceGraph. We'll see you next time.